Have you ever built your own house or been able to renovate a boat? I know I sure haven't. After a long career on the road and now dabbling in the gravel scene, our guest today has been able to do just that. Kiel Reinen joins us today on Bobby and Jens. All right, everyone. Big Bobby and Jens, welcome to Kiel Reinen. Kiel, how you doing, man? Yeah, doing doing well, thanks. By yourself. Okay, right out of the blocks here. Did I pronounce your name correctly? You did. It's it's just like uh, the bottom of a boat, uh, although spelled differently. And and the last name? Uh, Reinen. Okay, I did the, get the it. The last right. name is authentic. That is that's a Dutch last name. My dad's side. Uh, I always assumed my first name was Dutch as well. It wasn't until I was like in my mid twenties and a and a Dutch teammate heard me say that and looked at me and said. What are you talking about? That's not a Dutch name. You know, you're an idiot. And so I had to call. It was really embarrassing. I had to call my parents and, you know, ask, so is Kiel Dutch or not? You know, like, what, what's the deal here? I have been under the impression that it was Dutch. And they, they, you know, were confused that I was under the impression that it was Dutch and informed me, no, no, we were just hippies. Just hippies. Yeah. So it's a made up first name. Uh, I like it though. I like having a unique. There name. you go. So, how much of a hippie is left in you? Uh, yeah, plenty, <laughs> plenty. <laughs> oh man, I tell you, you you just answered so many questions because I remember hearing your name uh, back when you were racing uh, on the road, and I was I was around the road, so I didn't know exactly who you were. But yeah, I have to admit, I thought you were a Dutch rider on American teams, but now now we know. But man, first of all. You got to be one of the most interesting guys that I've come into contact with. So, where are you coming to us from now? And are you in that house that you built by yourself during the pandemic? Uh, I, I'm not. I'm actually in Eagle Harbor, which is down below my house, uh, Eagle Harbor, Bainbridge Island, Washington, uh, which is where I grew up on Bainbridge Island. And I'm on uh, my boat that I rebuilt this winter. So, just for our viewers, they are not American. Your island is what, like 10 miles away from uh, Seattle or five miles just uh, left of Seattle or west? Yeah, it's about seven, eight, yeah, straight, straight west of Seattle, about seven or eight miles uh, across the, the channel there. And how big is this island and what is the population? Population is a lot more than when I was a kid. Uh, when I was little, I think it was around 18,000. Now it's 25,000. And the, the island, you know, the classic loop around the island is called the Chili Hilly, which is a, a ride that takes place in February that a bunch of folks will come over from the mainland on the ferry boat for. And it's really cool. They, you know, like these big 300 and something foot ferries, they fill it up. You know, two or three of the ferries are just filled with cyclists, the whole thing. And, um, you know, several thousand people show up for that ride. And it's, it's called the Chili Hilly. Uh, because they serve chili at the end, and it's also chilly out. And and the hills, you know, the island is is quite hilly. It's there's not a flat road on it practically, and, and most of the climbs are really um, you know sharp, steep uh, kind of kickers. You know, thirty seconds to maybe three four minutes is the longest. And the loop, um, that loop is about thirty five miles. And um, the only way to get to your house is taking the boat, right? There's no bridge or no airport, right? So you fly to Seattle and then take a boat to go home. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the boat is the main way to, to arrive here on the island. There is actually a bridge at the north end that goes immediately off onto the Suquamish Reservation. So um, the Suquamish Reservation, actually the island used to be um, uh, 
part of their territory, uh, but um, the, the reservation itself starts just off the island after that bridge. So the, the bridge is another way off the island, but um, it's quite a ways around. Uh, there's a, a lot of you know, complicated waterways, bridges, fjords, that direction. And so to get back around to anywhere of consequence takes quite some time. Man, I used to complain when I had to go from my house in Nice to the airport, like having to drive to the airport and then unpack my bike and then, you know, get on the airplane. It sounds like yours is a little bit more complicated of a of a scenario to get going. But, you know, you kind of glance over this and I got to go back because I'm just absolutely intrigued by a guy that raced his bike as long as you did and still are doing has the know-how to build his not only his own house, but then to restore boats. I know you went to the University of Colorado Boulder and obtained a degree in mechanical engineering, but where did you learn how to do that? Yeah, a lot, a lot of osmosis. Um, to be fair, I had a bit of an advantage in that my dad is a builder. And so I was exposed to a lot of that in my, in my youth, although I didn't spend a lot of time doing it. Um, you know, I would do projects with my dad, obviously, on the weekends, but I, I don't have a, a, you know, a large background um, in construction. Um, but so a lot of it was, yeah, just osmosis and then um, learning by doing. I, I'm definitely someone who's willing to just take something apart and uh, deal with the consequences and figure it out as I go. So, uh, you know, I have no formal education in uh, like engine work, um, like the, the, the diesel motor that's on the boat is a, a three-cylinder Yanmar. And um, I just, you know, I find those systems really fascinating. Um, so if you start taking that engine apart and, you know, the heat exchanger is where I started because it's it's sort of, there's a lot less um, uh, precision to that system than, than some of the other systems on the engine. And so, you know, as you take that apart, you can kind of see the inner workings. And once you see everything, you know, once you kind of like, take away that veil, a lot of the mystery disappears and then, and then it sort of makes sense and you can kind of piece it back together and, and understand what things are, you know, like what bolt is really important versus another one that's, you know, just there to hold something in place versus, um, you know, needs to be applied with a certain amount of torque, that kind of thing. And of course, as a kid working on bikes, that was probably my first introduction into um, the importance of certain, you know, um, components versus others. You know, like if you... If you go in and um, like a cassette, you remember the old cassettes that weren't one piece, you know, different back then. <laughs> and they had uh, the little rings, the little spacers in between each cog. I didn't know, you know, when I first started working on bikes, if it mattered whether those cogs, those spacers were in the same position um, that they were when you took them off, right? Like obviously now I know that they're completely interchangeable, but as a, you know, 15, 16 year old working on my bike, I thought each one had to be in the same position it was when it went off. So I would, I would meticulously take, you know, like each component off, set it out on the bench, mark it like its orientation and its, you know, numerical order uh, and then put everything back. And of course, as you do it, you know, you learn what, what's really um, vital and what's not. So you seem to enjoy repairing things, taking things apart. If you would be back 20 years or 25 years ago, would you become a cyclist again or would you become a boat builder or a construction uh, company uh, founder or would you still do now? Cycling, it's my life. I'm still going to do it. I think I missed my era. I think I would have been better off as a cyclist in the you know, 1940s than uh, in the era I raced in. But um, 
no, I, I definitely don't have any regrets. I think I, I, I so much of, of who I am um, is a result of, of me choosing sports as a, as a career path. And I, I don't frankly know why as a, you know, 16 year old, I, I latched onto the idea, but um, once I did, I was, I was just really determined to make that uh, my pursuit. And so I, I enjoyed both, you know, getting there and, and being in it, but also the pursuit itself. And sometimes I look back to those early days, you know, as I'm sure you guys do too, where you were, um, you like had this goal in your head and this big dream and you were just, you were taking these steps every day towards that dream. And there was no assurance that you were ever going to get there. Uh, but that process is, is really enjoyable. And that's where you grow as a person. And I think that my interest in mechanical systems and building houses and working on boats, you know, it has more to do with that, that desire to, you know, continually increase my knowledge base and, and, you know, and learn and absorb. And there are so many smart people in, in all these, you know, unique niches and, you know, cycling in America is sort of a unique niche. And so, um, just discovering these other worlds has been an enjoyable process. Well, cycling is a unique niche. If you live in Colorado or were raised in Colorado, like I am, you're on an island off the coast of Seattle. What was that initial introduction for you into the sport? Where did you catch that that cycling bug, or who was your your first kind of influence? Yeah, great question because it is an odd place to become a professional cyclist, especially you know America. Period, but but, but here even more so. And, um, there's, there's a pretty easy answer. I, I was a little bit lucky in that my dad knew a bit about road biking. He was certainly not a racer. I didn't have any family history, uh, in cycling, but he had ridden his bike around uh, a lot in college and, um, you know, did some local group rides down in the Bay area and he was familiar with it. So that, that helped a lot. You know, when it came to like picking out a bike for his kid, he knew what he was looking at. The, the really big catalyst, though, was um, Paul Johnson, who owns Classic Cycle here on the island, uh, one of our two bike shops. And Paul was the head mechanic um, when I was a kid at the shop and then later went on to buy it uh, about, geez, 12, 12 or 13 years ago now. And he had been a, a mechanic for the national team over in Europe uh, for the road team. And so he knew not just sort of the ins and outs of the sport, but, but sort of where to direct your energy. Um, to actually make headway towards becoming a, a professional, a European professional specifically. So uh, Paul noticed I was riding my, my bike a lot and suggested that I go over to to Seattle and um, try out the Seward Park Criterium. So he dragged my friend and I over there and, and showed us what it was all about. And, and I was really lucky that even though occasionally I think the sort of road cycling community can be... Um, <coughs> the way to word it a little bit um difficult to sort of break into um it can feel a little elitist uh there's a really great road cycling community here in in seattle and so it didn't uh end up kind of feeling unwelcome i in, instead i got sort of the opposite uh reaction where all of a sudden you know there's this this community of people that were all um, interested in pursuing the same thing I was and really accommodating and um, helpful in, you know, sort of bringing me in and, and showing me the way. So uh, 
Paul was was the catalyst, and I would say the, the the local cycling community in Seattle and on the island specifically was sort of what kept me interested. So I, you know, I would go to these sort of regional races as a kid, usually with my friends' parents. You know, I had a couple of high school friends whose parents were into road biking, and so I'd, I'd spend my weekend with you know some folks in their mid forties, and we'd drive out, and um, you know, I'd sleep in the the hotel room closet and trying to do it on the cheap and. It was it was a really humble beginning, um, but one that I, I was really appreciative of later in my career. What did your um, schoolmates, your friends, say about your decision to become a cyclist and not a football player or baseball player or any other sport? Was it a popular decision back then, or you were like some kind of outsider as a cyclist? I now all of a sudden I wish I was at home because I I have. Uh, our yearbook, you know, from high school. And in it is a picture of a couple of friends and myself. Uh, one of those friends still lives on the island and, and has two daughters like me. And, and so we spent a lot of time together. Um, but the, uh, geez, it was either four or five of us, but we started a bike club at the high school. And these other kids were all mountain bikers because that, you know, that's what made sense out here. And bike club was all about getting kids to ride their bikes to school. And we were really into, um, Just sort of like in the environmental impacts of getting kids to, to do that. And so we would host these bike to school days once a month and we'd have tea and toast uh, with like jam because that was a popular here thing here because of the bakery. And uh, we'd serve that out in the commons area at the high school and just try and, you know, coax kids into riding their bike. And we'd have a big sound system that we'd bring in and our buddies beat up the car and uh, blast music. And we tried to make it, you know, cool. And I also consider myself lucky in that I lived in a unique place where the only popular thing wasn't to just play football or, or baseball. And so th there were a lot of kind of unique sports that were popular at our high school, like rowing crew. Um, lacrosse was quite popular. We had a sailing team that was very competitive. And so although there weren't very many people cycling, definitely not, you know, very many road cyclists, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't like I was unpopular because I chose an alternative path. You know, everyone has their, their unique way into the sport, and I don't think any story is the same, but it's amazing to me how many of us were influenced by our fathers. To this day, you know, my dad was one of my best coaches. I know that it's, it's the same, same for a lot of us. But when, when you started racing, uh, you raced for the Jelly Belly team, which was my favorite all-time candy. So when I saw those, when I saw you guys at the races, I'd always try to, you know, you know, chum up next to you guys to get a bunch of the, the sport beans or the, the jelly bellies. And then you rode for, for the team type one Sanofi team. Was that back before the team was all uh, filled with all diabetic athletes? Was that when it was kind of first starting and you guys were mixing and matching? Because I spoke with with um, your old boss, Phil Sutherland, and he had nothing but great things to say about you. But I was just wondering, you know, how, how that team, how, how, how it went on, on that team with, with riders that are competing with, with diabetes. Yeah. Uh, so starting with Jelly Belly, again, you know, sort of, I really appreciate that, that I, you know, throughout my career, I kind of made these incremental steps And it took me a long time to develop as a rider. And I think, you know, one of the things that's, that's really hard for me now looking at the sport is just seeing how few options there are for uh, riders that 
you know, are like me in that sense. You know, if you're not 18 and good enough to go straight to the world tour, there are so few options for you. And, and, you know, I was lucky enough to come through sort of in this heyday of domestic cycling, where there was seven, eight, nine continental teams that were all really good teams where guys, some guys made their living just on those teams. You know, they never went to Europe after that and, and had really satisfying careers. So, um, it was a really special time, I think, in American cycling when I was on Jelly Belly specifically. And we had big races like Tour of uh, California, Tour of Missouri, uh, Utah, Philly. Uh, there were just, there were really important races in the U.S. still at that point. And then I, I went on to, um, to Santa Fe. And that really, for me, that, that departure from Jelly Belly and moving on to that team was about getting full-time to Europe. And I, I came on to, to Santa Fe at a, a you know, a bit when they were in, a, in the midst of a big transition. So they went from a continental team to pro continental with a, a much, much bigger budget. And they, they basically took the team, you know, what was an American team and uprooted it and moved it to Italy and hired a lot of Italian staff, a lot of Italian riders and started using Italian equipment. And, you know, the, the identity of that team, it's not like, they shoved their old identity to the side and, and you know, ignored it, but it, it had a very new identity with a very different feel to it. And it was a tough call. I had um, some other offers that year to go to um, some even bigger teams. Um, but I, I was also a little hesitant about giving up um, sort of everything, you know, my, uh, not just where I live, but but also my kind of place within the team, my identity on the team. And, you know, it's very intimidating as an American to go to, you know, like a Spanish team that's, you know, 75% Spanish riders. You have to learn a new language. You have to live in a new place. And Santa Fe felt to me at that time, like maybe a good balance between the two. There was still a lot of American influence and you know, people in the organization who are American um, although not very many American riders. And that was that was sort of, you know, true for most of my career. Um, and, and I think very typical for most Americans is there's there's not a lot of um, a lot of us doing this. So uh, when we <clears throat> went over to Italy that, that first year, I lived in, in Italy, not far from the team base, which was um, along the coastline, kind of north of Luca. And I lived uh, just outside Camaiore. And the the team had I, I want to say either three or four dive riders uh, for those two years that I, I rode with the team and I at the end of that two years is when they transitioned to a new sponsorship and and then an all all diabetic team and so it was a, a you know another big identity shift for that that organization but they you know they gave me the opportunity to be based in Europe and, and race primarily in, in Europe. And that was another, you know, really big uh, step for me and, um, you know, in the progression of my career. Talking about identity, just about this year, I think we raced together in Tour of Colorado and in Tour of California, right? And you were, you were always easy yeah. to recognize because of your longer hair and the feather on your helmet. Explain, explain to our <laughs> listeners. What, yeah. what was the feather about? Why did you have it and why you keep it for so many years? Yeah, so I had a feather there before, long before I had longer hair. And I think that I, I, it was always really important to me to feel like an individual doing the sport. 
it's I think it's really easy to lose yourself in a team environment where you know you're a wheel a wheel in the or a cog in the wheel, and I I don't think it didn't dawn on me until much later in my career or later on in my adulthood that I I had sort of as unique of a, a background or existence um, as I did. I, I just thought, you know, like you only know what you know, right? So for me, my childhood, my um, my existence seems quite normal because that's what I'm surrounded by. But I think in the within the Peloton, of course, I was different, you could say. And I, I didn't realize maybe how different, um, but I wasn't an outcast. I, I also had a pretty easy time getting along with teammates and I felt... Um, valued on the, on the teams I rode for and but I also always managed to find space to just be myself and the the feather for me was you know along with other little things I did were, were mostly reminders to myself to be myself and um, and to trust in the process and it having that that sort of constant reminder whatever it is whether it's a you know a feather or a haircut or a a, a quote on your, you know, stem. Uh, it's it's that reminder to be present, um, to to be yourself, to trust your your instincts. I you know I, I imagine both of you now, as I'm am telling you this, are, are relating to it and and thinking of things you used to tell yourself in your head or things you used to, you know, have a picture of in your wallet or on your bike. It, it's we are humans at the end of the day, and I think the sport is most beautiful when we showcase that. When, when we get too much about the tactics and the, the sort of robotic um, behavior of, of the teams within the race, we lose the, the plot. And at the end of the day, the sport is interesting because interesting people do it. And, and we should embrace that. I, I wish there were more stories that sort of showcase that. I'm a big fan of cyclists, not only being cyclists, but characters as well. And thank you for sharing that that story. I never really knew that, but that was such a, a great explanation. But, you know, you stayed on a, a very big international team up until the time that you retired from the road, being Trek Segrafredo. Was, were all these teams happy the way that you wanted to maintain your, your personality and, and the way that you do things? Or did you sometimes feel like you were fighting against the grain a little bit or being just a, a cog in the wheel? No, again, I think it, it was maybe partially deliberate and intentional when, when I chose the teams that I rode for. Maybe I, I was subconsciously looking for places where I, I could be myself. And, and I definitely, at, later on in my career, I was less desperate for, you know, bigger, better every year. And I was much more intentional about, you know, finding spaces where I was happy and, and comfortable. And, um, no, I, I can look back and genuinely say that I, I had the privilege of riding for, for teams and organizations that didn't just allow me to be myself, but appreciated it. Uh, you know, like it, it was funny, you know, like there were definitely times at the dinner table at Trek where I, I would do or say something that I think a lot of other riders maybe wouldn't have gotten away with, but everyone would, would sort of brush it off because it's like, yeah, but that's Keel, you know, what are you going to do with him? And, but in a loving way, you know, like in a way that wasn't dismissive, it just, I, I was accepted for being different. And I, I actually wrote this email when I, when I retired um, from Trek, 
you know, I'd been with the organization a long time and had a lot of, you know, close friends on the team. And so I, I was thinking about, you know, wanting to just send a thank you to everybody, um, you know, staff, writers, uh, directors, everybody. And <clears throat> I, I could have kind of rambled on and it could have gotten really heartfelt. It could, you know, it could have been a lot of things, but I wanted it to be simple and clean and, um, but also feel like it, it came from my heart. And so I wrote this email uh, to the team about uh, peanut butter <laughs> because I, being the American on the team, I introduced everyone to uh, peanut butter. And, and it wasn't just peanut butter in general, right? Like, there's lots of different types of peanut butter. First of all, it's got to be stir, um, you know, salt or no salt. How, how long you roast it? Is it dark roast, light roast? And, and even where the peanuts come from can change the flavor a lot. So I gave like the entire team, you know, a PhD in peanut butter. And so in this, in this email before I left, I, I basically just said, you know, thank you everyone for, for all that you've done for me and, and for the memories I, I get to cherish. Uh, and, and please, like, if there's any lasting legacy from my time on the team, let it be a jar of, you know, stir peanut butter on the table at all times, properly stirred. What was the response to that? <laughs> uh, I, I think I think most people understood. They knew they knew me well enough to know that uh, I I was you know being self deprecating, but also that I I cared about them um, and wanted them to um, know that I was supporting them even if I wasn't there anymore. It's really starting to feel like winter around here. And I know that when most people think about trail forks, they think about mountain biking season. But there are also a ton of features and layers geared for winter activities like fat biking, Nordic skiing, snowshoeing, and snowmobiling. And of course, you get favorite features like the popularity heat map and trail reports. This 30% off deal is for Trail Forks Pro with Outside Plus. So you will get all the goods from the outside network. Unlimited digital content, films and TV shows, and expert-led online courses. On top of global access to the Trail Forks app, this subscription also comes with Outside Plus. That means you get benefits across the outside network. And as a member, you're supporting incredible projects like Pink Bike Racing. If you haven't checked out Season 3 on Outside Watch yet, I highly recommend it. It's my kind of reality TV, with 10 mountain bikers competing for $30,000 and a pro contract. This is our last sale of the holidays, so get it for yourself or gift it to your buddies. And, by the way, you don't need to worry about shipping. Find out more and get 30% off for a limited time at trailforks.com slash podcast. Okay, so the curtain comes down, you leave Trek Segrafredo, and I remember, I think it was last year, you came up to the Brent Bookwalter binge, and it was, I think it was at the end of the season when you were starting to convert or had just converted to gravel riding. And like I said, I, I knew you, your name for a while. Like I said, I always thought that you were, you were Dutch or for a while there, I thought you were Dutch, but it was a, really the first time that I got to ride with you, talk with you. Um, 
there wasn't so many people on the ride, but we had a blast. I remember it being cold and, you know, everyone had to kind of fend for themselves a little bit. And I still consider myself a Cat 5 gravel guy, um, just trying to learn the sport. But man, it seemed like you were meant for the gravel. You just had a vibe. You just had a smile. The way that you pedaled your bike, I mean, you were still super fit, but like you just seemed to be enjoying it in a way that a guy that just came off the road for the last, I don't know, 10 or 12 years would have some adaptation period. But were, were you always just a gravel guy hiding out in in World Tour Lycra? <laughs> yeah, I, before there was gravel riding, uh, well, we used to do it before it existed, you know, because that's what we had access to. But but even before it was, it was sort of this, um, you know, segment within the sport, uh, I always felt like like a mountain biker trapped in a, a road biker's life. Uh, it, it just was more my my speed, my vibe. And I, I remember this one team camp uh, for Trek. I showed up. I got to the. I think I got in like a day later than everybody. Maybe I was coming from the U.S., so there's probably some sort of delay with my flight or something like that. And I, by the time I arrived at Sicily in the airport, um, you know, I was later than all the other riders, and a couple of other sponsors were coming at the same time. And so the team had arranged for us to, you know, share a van together to get to the the team hotel. And these the sponsors, I actually can't remember which company they were from, um, but it doesn't matter. They, they're in the van and they're chatting with me and they didn't outright ask, but I think they just sort of came to the assumption that I was a mechanic for the team, you know, partially because of the way I look uh, and, and maybe my demeanor. I, I don't know exactly, but that's the conclusion they came to. And I just went with it. And so like we got to the team hotel, we sat down, had some dinner because we were late for everything. And, you know, I spent the whole evening with these, these guys and, you know, the next morning we show up for the ride and they see me in spandex with the rest of the team. And they're kind of like asking, you know, one of the directors, like, why, why is one of the mechanics riding with the team? You know, like, shouldn't he be working on the bikes, you know? And then the director looked at them and was like, no, he's, he's one of the riders. And it just, it, it was, it was a really good um, I think lesson for everyone involved in like, oh, there's, there's a lot of ways to do this. But for me, it was also the realization of, oh yeah, I don't, I don't fit the mold. And when gravel came along, it, it did feel right in a lot of ways. It's, you know, in the beginning, of course, it wasn't like you could pick between road and gravel. It wasn't like a career choice. Um, and now we've seen such a big shift in, in the last couple of years in the gravel world and, and just, like even for me riding around uh, in my neck of the woods, nobody, nobody's riding road bikes anymore. And I think a lot of that has to do with what we have access to. And also probably why you saw me and thought, wow, he seems confident on a gravel bike is, you know, like that's mostly what I'm riding is either really rough chip seal or gravel roads. And so it's, it's definitely been part of my, um, you know, training for a long time. I, I mostly trained on a cyclocross bike uh, in the winter just because that's, again, what I had access to was you know, either trails or gravel roads. And and it made sense. You know, in the winter, it's cold and wet here. Uh, those types of bikes tend to, you know, slow you down. And um, and you can kind of jump into the woods and, and get away from the rain for a little bit under the tree canopy and then jump back onto the road or, or um, you know, gravel path uh, for a bit. And it just allowed a lot, of, a lot more flexibility. So I, um, as soon as there was a gravel bike available, of course, I you know, called a 
up trek and said, hey, I got to get my hands on one. And so then that was my, my training bike for about three or four years, last three or four years of my career. So before we like go further into your gravel racing, back in the days as a road uh, cyclist, Were you ever based in Europe or the team that you choose wherever you want to live? And if you were in Europe, where did you actually end up living during the season? Yeah, so like most of the other Americans, I, I had a base in Girona. And I did bounce back and forth probably more than, than most. Um, you know, certain teams are much more restrictive with that. And again, it was one of those things where I think um, Trek knew I was responsible enough to, to do the training and show up fit. And they knew it made me a, a happier, better rider if I could have a bit more time at home. And so um, they allowed me to, to jump back and forth uh, a little more often. And sorry to just jump back into the, the gravel, but so riding so long on, on the road, what does motivate you about racing on the gravel? Yeah, so that's an interesting question because it, it is really different if you've raced a discipline and sort of made a career out of it. And then, and now you're dabbling in, in what feels like almost a different sport in a lot of ways. And I, I really came into gravel at the beginning of last year, uh, which is I, like, every time I say that I'm shocked. Like it's, it's technically less than a year ago that I retired, which doesn't, it doesn't feel that way, but, uh, it, yeah, it's in some ways it's flown by and in other, other ways, my road, you know, my memories from the road are right there, but the, the transition itself for me was more about, okay, I want to enjoy bikes and I've reached sort of a, the terminus of my road career of my, my all out racing career, you know, blinders on training as hard as I can, making the sacrifices. My, my older daughter's six. Now she started kindergarten Uh, my younger daughter is two and, and the travel just felt a lot more complicated than it used to. And, and having them rooted in one place just made a lot more sense. I also think that the, the pandemic certainly exacerbated some of what I was already feeling. Um, so, you know, maybe I would have raced another year or two without the pandemic, But it just, it felt like the right time. And I don't look back and regret that decision at all. I, I do think it was the right time for me. I didn't want to get to a point in the sport where I felt sort of bitter about where I was at or where the sport was going or, you know, like, I mean, Jens, you've been around the sport for so many years. You know, you, you were a racer for longer than most. It, when you see those, those changes happening within the sport, I think it's easy for like the old, old man in us to kind of be like, Oh, yeah, well back in my day, you know, we didn't have electronic shifting or, you know, we used to go up the Hills and group pedal a lot easier. <laughs> and I just didn't want to um, feel sort of frustrated about where the sport was before I bowed out. And so I, I left, you know, still loving the sport. And when I went to gravel, it wasn't really to replace road. It was more about to rediscover the joy in, in riding And then to have really relatable experiences. So, you know, another thing that I'm sure both of you feel is when you tell stories about your career or think back to those memories, it's really hard to relate those to anything that normal people experience. You know, someone could ask you, oh, how was that stage in the Dauphiné? And you can't really explain because, you know, they didn't have a chef. They weren't getting driven around in a team bus. They didn't have to chase down, you know, guys doing 600 watts up the climb. You know, I, did, I barely had a chance to look around most of the time. So uh, 
my my experience wasn't relatable in any meaningful way to most people, and I I craved having some experiences on the bike that were, you know, I liked riding with my friends. I liked doing events where you know all the participants did the same course and rode through the same weather, and then could talk about it at the end and and tell stories and and you know just have that shared experience. So gravel seemed like a great way to instead of having to kind of quit cold turkey and, and make a hard left, um, I could sort of have this lighter transition where I got to rediscover the bike for myself and relate to all these people who are fans of the sport and enjoy riding. And at the end of the day, everyone involved in the sport loves bikes. Whether you're a, a director, a mechanic, a soigneur, a racer, an amateur, um, every, everybody has a passion for pedaling. And in my experience, especially after this past year, I just think the more people on bikes, the better. And and gravel seemed like a way to, a, a more direct way to accomplish that than road. And so, um, yeah, I didn't go into gravel thinking, oh, I'm going to be ultra competitive with this. I'm going to take what I've learned on the road and apply it to gravel and change the discipline or bring my own, you know, version to the scene. I think it had a great thing going and I just wanted, I just wanted to be in on it. And I didn't have a lot of... Um, ambition when it came to, you know, results or, or personal achievements this year, it was more experiential and, and about rediscovering the bike. Now that's, that's fine and all, but the landscape also shifted. And so, you know, during the course of this year, what I saw as a, you know, like a viable plan, um, and it may have been a couple of years ago is, is sort of less viable than it used to be. And the races are getting more competitive. There's a deeper talent pool. There's more pressure. Um, the equipment is is getting better and better, and the tactics are, are shifting to you know more like road race tactics. And of course, that's not the case at every event, and it's not the case you know if you leave the front group out of the, the equation. You know, the, these are still participatory events. There are still hundreds, if not thousands, of people you know showing up and just trying to get to the finish and enjoying the process of that. So you, you can experience different versions within it, but I definitely found myself, you know, towards the end of this season, having to reassess my approach to gravel and, and decide, you know, does it feel right or do I need to change things up for next year? And what's the solution you came up with? And coming from road cycling, did you change your training? You train less intensity, more hours? Did you actually go easier on your diet? Or are you still as strict with your diet than you were as a road professional? Yeah, at the end, I can say this year for me was was more like a, a retirement than a transition. I, I approached this year very much as a, I'm, I'm done with that version. I'm going to intentionally pick a different version. So I wasn't, you know, paying attention to diet. I wasn't training nearly as much as I had. I was, I was really going out and trying to enjoy riding um, and rediscover why I f fell in love with cycling in the beginning, right? Because, you know, we all dreamed and aspired to be European professionals, but that's not really what we fell in love with. You know, the version that you fell in love with happened long before you ever, you know, raced as a professional in Europe. So I, I was trying to, to sort of rediscover that, that part of it. And I think I needed this year um, and the space to do that. And I don't think that that needs to necessarily dictate how I approach it next year like now that i've had room to to do that version it's 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 fine if i want to change it up for next year and, and frankly i yeah i haven't exactly concluded 
what what that means. I do know that I I found it hard to to go to every event and um, and not have that sort of competitive drive associated with it. You know, you're so used to that as as a professional racer to just to be competitive about it. I it did feel like something was missing when I when I didn't approach it that way. Um, and I miss the process of training. I miss, you know, going through and, you know, parsing out when you need to do certain intervals and, you know, like why you felt bad here and, and what were the contributing factors when you felt good over here. That, that process is still a really um, intriguing process to me. And so I, I miss that too. Uh, when you're when you're not worried about results, you can kind of just do what feels right on any given day, but you lose the process. Uh, but I like what you said about the whole spirit of gravel. Uh, from what I understood, being a newbie into the sport, is that it is more about the participation and not necessary, not necessarily the placing. Right. Like you, you want to go there. You want to enjoy yourself. You want to have fun. You don't necessarily need to be in the front group. But with so many gravel events popping up compared to the scarcity, unfortunately, of road events here in the USA, what does make one gravel event better or more special than than another one? Yeah. So this is this is gravel's quandary, right, is with with the sort of uh, disappearance of American road cycling in a lot of ways. Gravel racing, riding has to be everything to everybody. It, it isn't just enough for gravel to be what it was five years ago. It also has to be the place where, you know, people in their early 20s who want to pursue road cycling as a career and have gotten really excited about it and, you know, are trying to find that competitive um, drive. That's where they're going too. And, and people who, you know, were 18 really good but not good enough to go straight to the world tour – that, like what other avenue are they going to take? It's it's such a quantum leap to go from racing in the U.S. to racing in Europe, even if it's for an amateur team. You know, as a young kid, that, that is just such a stretch for most people, um, and and like a leap too far all at once. So those those kids need to be satiated with you know gravel racing. Um, people who just want to participate and push themselves and try something new, they need to find a place there ex-pros trying to figure out who they are and what they want to do with their lives need a place you know like it's it has to be a lot of things to a lot of people and that's that's what's tough for gravel right now is you know it's having an identity crisis because so many people are, are asking of it to be the thing for them and i would still make the argument that there is room for all of those versions within it uh, but it that does make it more complicated right like at what point are organizers going to have to close down roads uh, you know if it gets any more competitive it's not going to be just you know, 200 people at a start on roads where there's cars, you know, only rarely. We have now you know tens of thousands of people sometimes, and and these are on on open roads, and it's the equation changed. So I I don't think it's my job to decide what gravel should or shouldn't be, or what the what the spirit of it is. I just think that as we as as we as as a group, as we decide what, what gravel is going to be, um, we should account for the fact that we're asking a lot of it and, and we should have patience, you know, as it, as it finds itself, I guess. So do you sometimes feel like, uh, the gravel, gravel scene, gravel racing 
is almost becoming a victim of its own success. It's becoming so popular so quickly, it cannot keep up with the demands and all these ideas. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it again, it, it's so many people are gravitating to it for completely different reasons. And I, I get it. You know, I'm one of them. So I, it's not like I can roll my eyes and say, oh, well, you know, it's overhyped. It, it is really a great space to become a cyclist or to be a cyclist in. That said, it's, it's popularity. I mean, it just snowballed. And now, you know, there is, there's so many races to pick from. It's hard. And they all have different vibes. It's one of the things I love about it, right? It's because there's not sort of one world tour umbrella, all of these races and events can afford to be really different personalities. They don't all have to be the same. And usually, you know, the personality of the race is a reflection of the organizer's personality. And there are a lot of different organizers. So the, the other thing that's really cool too is like the hotbeds, the areas that are, are, you know, the best areas for gravel, they are not the normal areas you would associate with, you know, like flying in to race for. And, and I, I really appreciate that. I mean, these races are bringing a lot of value to the areas that are being held. And towns, you know, like I never thought I was going to visit Emporia, Kansas. I've flown there like four times now. And I think that's, that's really cool. And that's what's powerful, right, is, you know, we do bring some economic might as a, as a group. And so we have the ability to sort of, you know, influence for the better the places we go and visit as long as we do it correctly. Well, talking about the, the popularity of all these gravel events, it seems like there's just a gravel event, you know, pretty much every weekend. But I read on, on VeloNews.com today but that the rooted Vermont gravel started by Ted King has paused his event for, for 2023. And the cause for this hiatus is changes taking place in gravel that presents risks which each organization must consider and weigh. What what does that mean? Like, what are they having to face now that some of the some of these races may fall by the wayside? Yeah, I don't. I certainly don't want to put words in Ted and Laura's mouths. Mouths. They they may have had reasons that are, are different than the ones that first come to my mind. But um, I could imagine if I were a gravel race organizer, the the things that I would be most sort of concerned about uh, in the. Um, version we're in now are safety, you know, rider safety, uh, and competition. Because there are so many gravel races, and we've seen this with a few organizations who sort of tried to branch out. They've had one successful event, and then they try to make three or four more that are you know, under their umbrella. Some of those organizations have really struggled with that transition where they're, they're sort of, um, you know, marquee event is, is successful, filled with riders, is sustainable, but the, the events that they try to um, adopt after that really struggle for uh, entrance. And then the other component is uh, safety. So like as the races get faster and more competitive and there are more and more people attending them, how do you keep those riders safe from traffic on the road, safe from the elements? I mean, these are participatory events. And when you have a 200 mile ride through bad weather, you know, on gravel roads, people can get lost, they can get injured, they can get stuck out there, and you're a long way from, you know, the hospitals and ambulances and helicopters. So there, you know, as an organizer, those are the two main things that I would be most nervous about. And I do think that even though gravel is still, you know, exploding, 
we're going to see an uptick in events to a point, and then there will be a self-selection process where you can't sustain that many events in that many places. And and so the, the events that are sort of best run, um, most prestigious, um, most sort of uh, diverse are the ones that end up sticking around. Um, let's have an easy question after all these, you know, almost philosophical uh, things. Pontificating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> give us like a story of your craziest wildlife encounter out there. Do you ever see a wild Mustang, a bear, an eagle chasing you down the road or <laughs> anything like that, a rattlesnake or anything funny, scary or impressive? Well, well, we were living in the in on the property while I was building the house. So we lived in a trailer. We had a 30-foot travel trailer that we lived in while I was building the house because it took me uh, a little over three years to build the house. And I uh, <clears throat> I was away at a race one week and there was a black bear was living in the ravine. And, you know, bears are, are really good with their hands, right? Like they're, they're notorious for coming and unlocking cars or opening doors. And, you know, they have an incredible sense of smell. So um, this bear obviously smelled some food inside the trailer and thought that, you know, he would go and, and check it out. And so uh, my wife woke up, you know, our, our youngest daughter wasn't born yet. So we just had um, our older daughter and woke up. Uh, you know, to what she thought was uh, our our daughter, you know, moving around because the trailer really bounced. You know, like it had that pretty sensitive spring, so if, if she was thrashing around in the bed, the whole thing would kind of rock and roll. Uh, anyway, it didn't take her long to realize that it was actually a black bear outside pushing on one of the trailer compartments, trying to open it. And uh, you know, the trash cans were knocked over the next morning, and the you know the the bear was left, I think, a little bit frustrated because the the door. Um, on the trailer had been locked, so he, he didn't actually get it open. But, uh, yeah, we do we do get some wildlife here. Pretty probably the coolest thing is the the orca whales. Um, so we have a resident pod down here, and then a few transient pods that come through. And when I'm out sailing, um, you know, certainly not every time, but relatively, you know, a handful of times a year, um, you get to see the orcas, and that's really something special. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And one last question from me about this house, because I'm just totally, like I said, intrigued that you, you were able to build your own house. How big is it? And what is like your most proud addition or or room of the house? Because I'm sure there's a lot that goes into building a house that I don't even want to know. But what are you most proud of? What is that feature? Could it be a Fancy bathroom, the kitchen, you know, your your man cave. Yeah, so I don't live in the fanciest house in the world. Um, we were pretty deliberate in in our intention with the house, which was to build build only what we needed. Um, I did sort of design it so that we can um, expand it if if we need to later on, uh, if if it's just kind of becoming too um, minimalistic. But uh, the house is only twelve hundred square feet. Uh, our daughters share a bedroom. And uh, there's a half bath downstairs and a full bathroom upstairs. And I, to be fair, I didn't do every single bit of work on the house. I did, I did like, I subcontracted out the drywall because, you know, like hanging drywall, it's not hard work, but doing that by yourself is so inefficient. Um, and on the island, um, electrical work, I, I did a little bit um, before I found out that you, you actually can't pull a permit um, as an individual. You have to have a company do it. 
so there were a few things that that I had to kind of piece together. Um, but I, I definitely did the lion's share and, and really enjoyed the process. And the, there's not a lot of things about the house that are, are really crazy unique, but my, my favorite thing in the, in the house is the fireplace. So we heat with a wood stove. Um, I have a, I have a wood uh, obsession and the, and sometimes we, I cook on it a bit too. It's got a cooktop to it. Um, so that's kind of the centerpiece of the house. And I, I have, you know, two daughters and, um, so I also knew that I was, you know, at some point the bathroom was just going to be like not mine to use anymore. So I, I did build an outdoor hot shower and, uh, I, I mostly shower out there and it's really nice when you, like, if you finish a ride, you can kind of just roll up and walk in with all your cycling clothes into the hot shower outside and, and rinse off because of course, you know, I ride a lot in the rain out here in the mud and, the, um, the, yeah, probably my favorite thing at the house, though, is just uh, sitting by the fire. So, uh, Mikael, um, I got one more question. Uh, we talked about your father's side of the family being being Dutch. How about your mother's side of the family? Please explain to our listeners a little bit about that, because you are um, native or half-native uh, American. Is that correct? Yeah, not not half, um, but uh, yeah, I on my mom's side is um, or uh, Kalitz, um, and the um, Kalitz land is is a little bit south of here. It's uh, kind of between Olympia and the, and the border with Oregon, so um, you know, still nearby, um, but a bit of a, a hike to go there with the kids. Um, but we do do like to go down and do uh, cultural events from time to time and. Um, the, I mentioned the Suquamish tribe here just off the island, um, has been really amazing in terms of their involvement with the community and, um, the you know, community here has also made a big effort in, in terms of, um, you know, reaching out and involving, um, the Suquamish tribe since, you know, these are their ancestral lands that we're on. So it's, it is, I think, special to be so connected to a place. I like to often say, I'm not, I'm not from here. I'm of here. And I really do feel that way. I mean, my, my family has been here um, in some version or another since time immemorial. So there's, there's a connection to this place that is just really unique. Um, and then my mom's side, um, the non-Calid side, has been here. Uh, my daughters will be Generation 7. So long time. Um, originally, the homestead, there was a homestead on, um, on Orcas Island and another one in Squim. Um, so, and we're kind of scattered around the islands here. I have an uncle on Vashon and a cousin on Maristone, another cousin here on, on the island with me, and um, and then a lot of family up in Port Townsend on the end of the peninsula. Well, Keel, I just want to thank you for coming on our show today. It's always great to to talk to interesting people about interesting things. Maybe we'll see you in a gravel participation uh, event somewhere or maybe back up here at the 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 book walter binge sometime yeah i appreciate the time you guys uh it's it's definitely i think it's really fun to chat and kind of think back to to all these memories and of course you know we all have a lot of shared memories and you know that's that's like the best thing i can say about my career is it's just it's given me a lot of wonderful memories and i i'll cherish that moving forward no matter what i do so just before we go, 
on this day of our recording, it was announced that David Rebelline was hit and killed by a car while out riding his bike in Italy. I met David in 1989 at the Junior Dusica Tour in Austria, where he won four out of the five stages and made a huge impression on me riding in his blue Italian national team kit. Years later, our paths would cross again on the Côte d'Azur, where we would ride together and we'd speak to each other in French. David was a true professional, had some amazing and not so amazing moments in his career, but would like to dedicate this episode in his memory and wish all of his friends and family strength and peace during this difficult period. Rest in peace, David Rebelling. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Kiel for being our guest. Thanks for listening, and please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Vela News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. Right now, you can get global access to the app with 30% off for our final sale of the holidays. If you're headed out fat biking or Nordic skiing, use the snow grooming layer to find trails nearby. You can also check the snow forecast right in the app. See slope angle and the avalanche forecast and filter the map for whatever kind of winter activity you've got planned. Get it for yourself or gift it to your buddies without worrying about shipping over the holidays. Find out more and get 30% off for a limited time at trailforks.com slash podcast. I know you have already heard a little bit about Trailfox Pro from Bobby and me, but it's our final sale of the holidays and I don't want you to miss out on 30% off outside watch also has more than 600 hours of member-only content, including every Warren Miller film ever made. And you get full access with Outside Plus. I know what I am doing over the holidays.